Good morning, church. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. We're going to study God's Word. I hope you got a Bible and you can open it up to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 130 is where we're going to be here this morning as we continue our series entitled Brand New, where we're studying what starts happening when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, He gives us His Spirit moves in on the inside, what are the kinds of things that start happening in our lives? And we've looked at one after another aspect of genuine Christian transformation. Psalm 130, we're going to look at this one together. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, if you'd follow along. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Israel, Put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. So Psalm 130 was road trip music. It was part of a playlist right here in the Psalms from 120 to 134, all called the Songs of Ascents. And this was music for the journey that was leading God's exiled people home back to the city of God in Jerusalem. I don't know how many of you, when you're traveling or going on vacation, you have a playlist that's ready. So for us, for for several years, especially when our kids were younger, the original go-to song as we were leaving from our house was always the same. In 2006, the movie Cars came out, and the theme song was Life as a Highway by Rascal Flatts had just this happening, awesome version of it. And our kids were like eight, five, and two at the time. So they were all in on the Life as a Highway and the cars and all the rest, right? So the first song when we would pack up and everybody's giddy and there's way too much energy in the house and everybody's just trying to annoy each other because when they're giddy, they just try to aggravate each other. So we're getting in the car, just kind of like, how do we get this energy out a little bit? And the way that we did it was we just leaned into it and we just put Life as a Highway, the very first song, turned it up, sang it as loud as we possibly could as we're heading off to vacation, which I think is a way better hype song for your way to a road trip than the song my dad sang from the front seat of our car when I was a kid, which was On the Road Again by Willie Nelson. Uh, So it just hit different uh, in the back then. So we're in this section of the Psalms and and it forms this playlist. So you see, you see there in in Psalm 130 that words of ascription, a song of ascents. You could see Psalm 129, a song of ascents. 28, 27. Again, that runs from chapter 120 through chapter 134. And the reason it's called a song of ascents is because as they were going from all the places to which they had been flung in the time of the exile, and as they're going back to Jerusalem for worship, They're ascending to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city set on a hill. And so wherever you were coming from, you were going up to Jerusalem. So these were the songs you were singing on the way home, but not just on the way home, on the way up. You were ascending on the way home. Beyond that, not just is this section from 120 to 134 
about this kind of journey home, singing our way back to the city of God, but the Psalms as a whole, all 150 Psalms, is in a sense a kind of poetic retelling of the history of Israel, anticipating the final state, anticipating the future reign of Messiah, the future reign of David's last and greatest son, who is the son of God and is the son of David. So a Old Testament scholar named Jim Hamilton unpacks it this way. He says, the Psalms, he's talking about the Psalms as a whole, the Psalms recount the history of Israel from David to the exile. And then they look beyond the exile to the new David who will arise and lead the people back to the land. The songs of ascents, of which our psalm is one, the songs of ascents evoke the streaming of the exiles, perhaps also the nations, to Zion. In other words, by the time this collection of songs that we have in the book of Psalms, by the time this was arranged, the people knew why they were in exile. They knew why they woke up every morning in Babylon or wherever it was that they were flung to, right? They knew why they ended up far from God and far from home. And so Psalm 130 is, is music for God's prodigal sons and daughters to sing their way back home. And so this psalm became the favorite of some of church history's least likely saints and most decorated sinners, people like Aurelius Augustine. This is his favorite psalm. Martin Luther's favorite psalm. John Calvin's favorite psalm. John Owen's favorite psalm. They loved this psalm. And I hope we're gonna understand why it, it was that they so dearly loved this psalm. So in terms of structure, here's how we're gonna go about it as we study it. It divides nicely into four couplets, two verses each, four sections, and each of them, in a sense, is a milestone on the journey back home. And the first one is this, sin. That's the theme. I call. I call. So look at verse one with me. Out of the depths, I call to you, Lord. So, so that word, the depths, that's, that's a metaphor in the Old Testament used in many different places. It's referring to the depths of the sea, which for Israel throughout the Old Testament, if you wanted to know what's the scariest place in the world, if, if, if they had a, a show called Fear Factor like used to exist in our culture, if they had a show called Fear Factor, the place they didn't want to end up is in the depths of the sea. Check out Jonah. It didn't turn out well, right? Depths of the sea. There are legendary stories about what happened in the depths of the sea. Leviathan lived in the depths of the sea. Noah had front row front row seats to see the power of the depths of the sea to conquer and cover the entire earth. Moses in that generation was backed up against the heart of the sea. They got Egypt in front and the sea behind and they didn't know which one is worse. And so then God opens up the sea. It would have been a scary slash awesome experience to walk through the depths of the sea and then to turn around and see what the sea can do when it closes back. And you see the entire Egyptian army bobbing in the water behind you. And it's sobering, right? And even, even not just in the Old Testament, all the way into the pages of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, the beast rises up from what? From the sea. Bad things are out there in the depths of the sea. And so to cry out, and that's what verse one is, to cry out to God from the depths is about as desperate an image as a Hebrew could conjure up to say, get me out of here. I don't want to be here a moment 
longer than I need to. But, but friends, Psalm 130 is not just about suffering. It's not just about kind of being over your head in general. It's not about suffering in general. It's about a particular kind of suffering. So there are, in the book of Psalms, exactly seven so-called penitential psalms. And this is the sixth in the series of seven. So penitential psalm, what does penitence mean? Penitence means deep sorrow for sin. So that's the particular deep water this guy is in, is the deep water of feeling sorrow for his sin, powerless against his sin. He is stuck and he's in deep and he can't get himself out. And you might be thinking, you know, I thought we were studying a series called Brand New. I thought we were talking about, you know, what happens in people's lives when they put their trust in Jesus. And yet, here we are in a psalm where this guy's over his head and he's stuck in sin. Well, friends, remember, that's not just an Old Testament theme. The people of God in the New Testament battle with sin. We fight. We wage war against sin. Sometimes it gets the upper hand. Hebrews chapter 12 says sin so easily entangles us. We get entangled in sin. The apostle John said to believers, he said, if you think you have no sin, you're lying. And the truth is not in you. You think you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. Brand new people, this side of heaven, don't have sinless perfection. We have a sinless advocate. That's the emphasis of the scriptures. But, but here... I think it's important for us to say as we look at this psalm in particular that we need clarity because, because sin is like a fog and we can get turned around and next thing you know, we don't know which way the road leads. We don't even know the way home. Even if we wanna go, we don't know the way. We're, we're lost, we're in darkness and there are at least two ways that we can get mixed up. We can believe two lies. Lie number one is Sin, this sin in my life isn't hurting me. It's not hurting me. Sin is normal, sin is fine. It's not something I need to be all that concerned about. Friend, remember, the Bible is uniform in its language about this. Sin is hurting you. Even if it doesn't feel like it's hurting you, it is hurting you. And it yields a harvest of pain as well. But Jesus comes up to Saul of Tarsus and Saul is in the fog. He thinks he's actually running toward God and he's running away from God and Jesus knocks him off his horse. He says, what are you doing? And then he says, you're doing this the hard way. There's a way to make this easier. Why are you kicking against the goads? In other words, that's Jesus' way of saying, you're making this harder on yourself than it needs to be. Friend, the only thing in the world that's more costly than following Jesus is not following Jesus. Nothing is more exhausting than searching the world high and low for satisfaction that's only found in the Lord. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Bro is tired. He's running high and low. He's turning over every rock to have this existential experience of pleasure and he can't get it anywhere. And he comes all the way to the end of the book and he says, my Sunday school teacher was right. The fear of the Lord, that's where it's at. Fear God and keep his commandments. Worship God and live for him. I should have known. Didn't have to walk and trudge through all this mess. Lie number one is sin isn't hurting me. Lie number two is God has given up on me. Because sometimes we can get to a place in our lives where we, yes, we're convinced. You don't have to tell me that sin has hurt me. Yes, I'm living there. I'm experiencing it. I don't think God wants me back 
after all these things that I've been doing in my life, I think God has given up on me. Friend, if God gave up on prodigals, we wouldn't have Psalm 130. We wouldn't have seven penitential psalms. A Christian author, Eugene Peterson, he wrote a book that studied very deeply the songs of ascent, all of these songs from chapter 120 to 134. He wrote a book and it was entitled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And another time in, in his life and in his career, when Eugene Peterson finished his, his paraphrased translation of the Bible, which is called The Message, they were going to celebrate the publication of this massive volume that he had created. And so they invited his son to be a part of that celebration with all the publishers and so forth. And his son got a chance to sh- say a few words at that event. And, and his son gets up in front of this group of people all there for the celebration. And he says, Dad... I've always teased you that you really only have one sermon. Every, every time you preach, you're just preaching the same sermon over and over. You go to a different text, but it's the same sermon that you preach every time. And so his son wrote a poem for his dad and released it at that event. And he said, I'm calling the poem The Message. And in the poem, his son is kind of jabbing. It kind of uses this metaphor it's an edgy metaphor. He uses this metaphor that his dad is a fraud and a magician. Because as a fraud and a magician, he says, you make people think they're hearing something new when in reality it's the same thing they heard you say before. And he read this poem called The Message. This is an excerpt. He said, it's almost laughable how you fooled them. <laughs> how for 30 years, every week, you made them think you were saying something new. So many times I've wanted to expose you, tell them all what you've been up to, and now you're doing it again. Only my inheritance keeps me from giving you away (laughs) because I alone know your secret because for 50 years, you've been telling me the secret. For 50 years, you've stealed into my room at night and whispered softly to my sleeping head. It's the same message over and over and you don't vary it one bit. God loves you, he's coming after you, he's relentless. He's saying, Dad, that's the thing you've always said. God loves you, he's coming after you and he's relentless. You know, every word in scripture was breathed out by God. That's the Apostle Paul tells us that in Timothy, 2 Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God. So why does God breathe out penitential psalms? Why does God breathe out Psalm 130? He breathes out Psalm 130 so that when you find yourself far from God, you can find your way home again. It's why he put it in the Bible. It's not just for your abstract, cool, detached theology. It's there so that when you find yourself in the fog of sin, you can find your way home again. It's beautiful, beautiful good news. The first words of this song are basically call and cry for help. God, breathe that out. He says, put these words into your mouth. I call and I cry to you for help. This psalm doesn't make you grovel. doesn't make you run laps. The very first verse in this psalm, it's a catechism. For thousands of years, God's prodigal sons and daughters have been catechized that when you're in the depths, just call. When you're in the depths, just cry out for help. We're not even one verse out of this psalm before we see God putting those words into the mouth of his people. 
He's trying to move us homeward. These verses are people movers. He moves from calling out to God from the depths to words of faith. So words about sin to words about faith. Faith, I believe. And what does the psalmist believe? Well, just listen to him and see if you can reach a conclusion about what the psalmist is convinced of. Verse three, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? It's obviously a rhetorical question. No one could stand. If you started counting up all the wrong things I've done, I'm toast. So, Lord, if you kept account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. This is This is the gospel in the Old Testament. And we shouldn't be surprised to see the gospel exist in the Old Testament because when the New Testament writers preach the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, they preach it from Old Testament text. Their only Bible that they had was the Hebrew Bible, was the Hebrew scripture. So in the book of Romans chapter four, the classic, awesome, Romans chapter four, Paul is teaching on justification by faith and he doesn't say to the church, hey, open your Bible to Romans chapter four. He's writing it. It's not ready yet. He's got several chapters left to write. So when he's gonna preach on salvation by grace alone through faith alone, he says, I need you to open your Bible and turn with me to a penitential psalm. Turn with me to Psalm 32 in particular. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. Those are the three texts that Paul is expounding in his treatment of justification by faith. In other words, here's the big idea. The whole Bible testifies to one big story about our sin, about our need, and about God's provision in Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is one big story and it's a gospel story. All the, all the penitential psalms are striking one bell and they're ringing it as loudly as they can and one of those bells that they're ringing is this, we don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve mercy. We're not entitled to mercy. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, that's a non-starter. <laughs> That's not where I want this conversation to go. Don't, I don't want to talk with you here in your presence about justice. I'm not comfortable in the justice house. I need the mercy house. So keep me there. If you kept account of iniquities, who could stand? The answer is obvious. Friends, remember, the wages of sin is what? Death. So you want to talk about what you deserve? Let's start there. You deserve to die. You deserve to be estranged from God forever. You deserve to be judged by God. That truth often confounds and and makes the proud angry but it causes the humble to rejoice all over the bible that truth causes the humble to rejoice because that truth is this those who aren't owed god's forgiveness are most thankful for it jesus said famously he who has been forgiven much loves much and he who has been forgiven little loves little. He didn't say that to imply that there are some people who just only need a little bit of forgiveness because they're so far ahead of the rest of us. No, he's talking about the Pharisees. They think they've been forgiven so little and that explains why there are never any tears in their eyes when they sing worship songs. Explains everything about, it explains why they carry themselves through all the pages of the gospel. They carry themselves with an air of entitlement to God's grace. We get first dibs. Syrophoenician woman, back up. This isn't for you. They had published that message far and wide. 
That's why they sometimes talk smack to Jesus. They would say, just, have you not done any homework on who we are? Do you not know your audience? It's pretty important to know your context. We're not a bunch of dirty Gentiles and you're talking to us like we are. Know your audience. We are children of Abraham. To which Jesus said, I know your father and he's not Abraham. You are of your father, the devil. He says, by the way, God can raise up children of Abraham from these rocks right here. There goes your entitlement to the grace of God. He can raise up stones as children of Abraham. And the point you see all throughout the pages of the Gospels is while the religiously entitled were busy debating who was on the guest list of the kingdom, all the train wrecks in town were coming to the feast. And they're coming to the feast, and what are they coming to the feast believing? They're coming believing basically verse four. With him there is forgiveness. That's why they're streaming in. They know they've got a past, but, but we know with him there's forgiveness. There is plentiful redemption. That's where this psalm is going. Look at verse four again. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be revered. There's a so that to an experience of genuine forgiveness, and it's a life changed. It's a life lived now for the glory of God. True understanding of the gospel leads to heartfelt worship and obedience. Not obedience that springs from fear, but the Apostle Paul would talk about obedience that springs from faith, that springs from a heart that trusts that God is good. That kind of obedience springs out of the heart that's been changed. In other words, it's not you and me nodding our heads to Christian ideas or traditional values. No, the, the, tra- the change is far deeper than that. Friends, if you grasp the message of Jesus that he came as savior and he died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins and then he rose three days later and now he reigns as Lord at the Father's right hand over the cosmos and over the church. If you believe that message of the gospel, you don't treat Jesus as a consultant. You worship him as God. He's the center of the universe and you've, been, you've become convinced of that truth. You trust his word more than your own instincts. You take up his cross because to follow him even in, into suffering is greater privilege than to succeed in the eyes of the world without him. God put this song in his word so that if you ever find yourself far from him, you can find your way back home again. This song is a gift to believers. So these exiles, they're singing about their sin. They're singing their faith, what they believe about God. And third, they're singing their hope. Hope, I wait. I wait. And what is he waiting for? You see those those words? I wait and put my hope in your word. So what word is he talking about? What word in particular does the psalmist need to hear from God? He's eager to hear something from God. He's hoping to hear something from God and it's a word. And the word in which he hopes is God's promise of assurance. It's God's promise of assurance. He's confessed his sin and he's asking God, don't leave me hanging out here. Tell me something. Talk back to me. I've spoken, now you speak. My, um, my best apologies are late night apologies. 
I don't know, I guess I'm in a, in a more reflective mood sometimes at the end of the day and, and I'm going to bed and I'm thinking about the day and sometimes it's in that moment that it dawns on me. You know, in that exchange that I had with one of my kids as a parenting moment, I was wrong. I hate that I'm realizing it this late at night, but I was, I was wrong and I, I would love to make that right. And sometimes as our kids have gotten older, here recently, sometimes I'll just send them a text from my dark room to their dark room upstairs. And the text basically says some version of, you might be asleep right now, but I just want you to know what I said earlier was wrong. And I'm asking you to forgive me and I'll lay out, what was it? How did that land on them? I go into why it was wrong and I'll say, please forgive me. And if they're awake, the beautiful thing that has often happened is sometimes a minute later, two minutes later, three minutes later, my phone lights up in my dark room and all is well. Right? The relationship is restored. I've been, I've been forgiven. We're good. Haven't even gone to sleep yet, but we're good. But sometimes if I send that message and they're already asleep, I get up the next morning and what am I waiting for? I'm waiting for all is well. I had to wait all night because you went to sleep and now I'm gone by the time they awake in the morning. But what's in my head is I'm waiting for a word. And what is that word? A word of assurance. A word that says all is forgiven. A word that says the relationship is restored. It's the absolute best word. Israel sins against God. Oh, goodness. How many times you read through the Old Testament, keep sinning against God and God speaks through his his prophet Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her iniquity is pardoned. All is well. I'm not gonna leave you hanging. We're good. Same thing, King David feels the weight of his sin. He sinned against God, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Bathsheba's husband, others, right? He feels the weight of his sin, he doesn't minimize it at all. And notice the movement in 2 Samuel 12. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Next breath. Then Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has put away your sin. One minute later, his phone lights up. We're good. The Lord has put away your sin. You know, for centuries, built into the very liturgy of the church, there was included a, a corporate prayer of confession that was then followed by an assurance of pardon. In other words, even in the liturgy of the church for hundreds of years, this structure is built in that's a reminder. A reminder of what? God doesn't leave his penitent people without assurance of pardon. You expect it, the psalmist expects it, and the psalmist gets it. He's waiting, he's waiting for the morning, right? He sends it late at night and he's waiting for assurance in the morning. Verse five, I put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Just unpack that imagery for a second. Who wants the sun to come up more than the guy who's got the night shift? Especially if that guy has been stressed and on the end of his nerves all night because he's, he's watching on the wall, of a walled city. 
His eyes peeled, trying to make his eyes adjust to the darkness. What might be out there? What Was that a broken branch or was that an enemy? Right? What's going on? He's constantly looking around and he's constantly waiting for sunrise. He watches for the morning and he's not just waiting, he's expecting. Right? Why? Because every night shift worker in history has had the same experience. The sun came up. If you worked the night shift last night, the sun came up. If you worked the night shift tonight, barring the return of Jesus, the sun will come up. And the psalmist is saying, more than the watchman's eyes are waiting for just the earliest symbol, the earliest sign of the sunrise. More than that, I'm waiting for a word of assurance from God that we're good, that all is well. It's like, it's like God's people are streaming home from all these places to which they'd been flung in exile and they'd wandered astray, but they're singing their way back to the city. They're singing their way back to God in this ancient liturgy following their confession of sin in verse three. There's this assurance of pardon in verse four. We know that God will not leave us hanging as to whether or not things are right between us. And this brings us to the final movement of the Psalms toward hope. He will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. Home. Home, he will. He, he welcomes them home. It's, it's as though God is there in verse eight, arms outstretched, promising them, when you get here, I'm gonna do that thing I do. I'm gonna redeem everything. I'm gonna cover everything. Just come home. We return to God when we're confident that with him is redemption in abundance. That conviction is what sends us home. Otherwise, we'd run the other way like Adam and Eve did in the garden. They sinned against God. They ran the other way. They hid in the bushes. God says, why are you hiding from me? You think about the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son, he finds himself eating with the pigs and he's in tattered clothes and then he starts to come to his senses and the first thought, the kernel thought that would end up sending him homeward was basically this. Even after this, I think my dad would take me back. Even after this, my worst body of work, even after I drank myself through my inheritance, I think my dad would take me back. And the father did so much more. He comes in saying, could I work around here? Just minimum wage is fine. Could I, could I just work somewhere on the farm? Before that even happens, the father runs. He sees his son at a distance and he runs. He just casts off all cultural decorum and he is trucking toward his boy. And when he gets there, he hangs on him, he kisses him, he starts barking orders, he says, kill the fatted calves, he says, I need some shoes, I need a ring, and I need a DJ. Because my son who I thought was lost is found. He's home, my boy's home. Party starts tonight. This song, Psalm 130, it is a tether for your wayward soul. 
binding you to him. These songs were meant to be formative. They're meant to shape our lives, our hopes. You talk about hope. Note the movement of this psalm. This psalm moves from a desperate cry for help in verse one to a confident declaration of hope. Look at verse seven and eight. Israel, put your hope in the Lord for there is faithful love. That's the word hesed. It's a legendary word in the Old Testament. The covenant love of God, the unrelenting love of God. There is faithful, unrelenting love with the Lord and with him is redemption in abundance and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. He's not praying anymore. He's telling a story. He's not praying, he's preaching. He's prayed with humility in the first several verses and then he preaches hope. He's dealing hope in verse seven and eight. Up to verse six, he's been talking to God. Now who's he talking to? You. He's saying, Israel, you've gone astray. It's time to go home. It's time to go home. And we have every hope that when we get there, He's going to do that thing he's been doing. He's going to redeem us from all our iniquities. He's saying, Israel, listen, hope in him. You got reason to hope in him. We know what kind of God he is. Friend, Psalm 130 is a gift from God so that you could sing your way home to him. I love that this psalm doesn't end by featuring and emphasizing what we will do but what God will do. Namely, he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. I think maybe many of us could testify, could share a story about how after we put our trust in Jesus Christ, there was a season of stumbling. Maybe many seasons of stumbling I think many of us could probably tell a story about how after we put our trust in Jesus, there was this season when the enemy deceived us and he pulled us into darkness and we woke up so far from home. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I imagine there would be hands all over this room of people who say, yeah, I've done that. I've, I've awakened in Babylon. I've, I've awakened in places that I realize I'm a long way from home. I'm a long way from God. And Psalm 130 is here to say, go back home. You don't belong out here. You weren't made for Babylon. You were made for Zion. You flourish in Zion. Get yourself back home. Father's waiting. He'll run in your direction. You ask the question, this psalm answers these questions. Whom does God forgive? Answer, all who call to him for help. Verse 1. How does God forgive? Well, that becomes so clear in the light of the New Testament, things that even the psalmist didn't quite know, right? We know how does God forgive? Ultimately, the blood of Jesus, his son, atones for our sin and all who trust in him find refuge forever. What does God forgive? Verse eight, everything. He redeems Israel from all her iniquities. You look in the book of Ezekiel, you talk about a dark book in so many places. The backdrop of the book of Ezekiel is God is looking at his people and they're there by the Kibar River. They're exiles. They're in Babylon. They're a long way from home. And if you ask God, Lord, these people who are far from you, what happens next? If you ask God that question in the book of Ezekiel, he says, 
Here's what happens next. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. That's my next move. I'm gonna seek them. I'm gonna bring them back. I'm gonna bind up their wounds and I'm gonna give them strength. In other words, we look at passages in so many places in scripture, Ezekiel is, is included in that. And what do we see? We see that it is in fact the kindness of God that leads to repentance. The psalm closes with the people of God hoping in one thing, and it's not their efforts, it's not their moral resiliency, it is the hesed of God, it is the covenant, faithful, unrelenting love of God. You see a graphic image of the hesed and covenant, unrelenting love of God in the story of Hosea. Hosea the prophet, and he marries a wayward wife. And how long did Hosea the prophet love his wayward wife? And the answer is forever. He loved her all the way to the end. What did his unfailing love do to the heart of his unfaithful bride? And the answer is it brought her home. And God was saying, that's gonna be the story. My faithful, unrelenting love for my unfaithful bride is gonna bring her home. We're in the series called Brand New and looking at evidences of the new life that God puts inside of us. And one of the signs of a true Christian is that when we wake up in Babylon, we realize it was better at home. I think I'm gonna go back now. It was better at home and God says, I'll give you a song to sing on the road trip. I'll give you a song to sing all your way back. It's got milestones. You'll move closer and closer in my direction. It's like God saw a day when his people would pack their bags and walk away from him. And he sees Israel, he sees us packing our bags and he, and he sneaks a little note inside our luggage so that somewhere down the road when we're busy trying to walk away from him, and we're fumbling through our luggage and we see that note and it's just got two words on it. Come home. It's time. Come on back. Some of you need to hear that word this morning. Maybe you're here, maybe, maybe you've been here consistently, but your heart is far away. Your heart is drifting away from God. You know what he would say to you? Come home. I'm here, arms open. Come on. Come home. Believe again, trust again. I've got good plans for you. Our friend Ray Ortland pastored at Emmanuel Nashville and nearly every worship gathering that they begin, the first words that are spoken in that worship gathering ring out like good news over tired sinners. And I wanna end by having us read these words together. And some of us need to say them nice and loud so that people around us can feel the wide-armed welcome of Jesus. So would you join me and let's read these together. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, This church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, 
the defender of the indefensible, the justifier of those who have no excuses left.